So given that it's Mother's Day, we kind of took a uh, right turn from what we were doing, strictly for the purpose that, you know, sometimes we just got to take a little break and, and honor moms because without mothers, we wouldn't be here, which is very true. That's a literal and a fictional statement. So you guys follow me on that? Okay, stay with me today. It's going to be all right. You know, when we look at what mothers do, the role of motherhood has changed through the year. And what's funny is that I'm experiencing this again, because as you know, we've got Josiah being at six months old. And so with baby number one, like you're baby-proofing the house, everything. There are no sharp corners. There's no outlet uncovered. There's no cabinet that you can open without an act of Congress, right? Like we, we bought a house and it had these, um, I thought the cabinet was broke. And there was these little things sitting up on the thing, uh, the shelf there, and I'm like, I wonder what those are for. And I could not get the cabinet open underneath the sink. So I did what every man would do, is you pull really hard until you get the cabinet open underneath the sink. So I continued to pull and pull and pull until I broke the cabinet and then realized, oh, it's magnetic. That's what that little white doodad's for. It unlocks it. Directions come in handy. We don't read those. But, <laughs> but with child number one, you go over the top to try to make sure their world is perfect. You buy the best formula, the best diapers. You do everything the best. Then child number two comes along. And you're like, eh, I got this. You know what you're doing, right? So it doesn't have to be the best. It's the best sale, right? And it's like, you know what? The other kid never hit one of those padded foam corners, and they're kind of a pain. And I don't like locking cabinets, you know? They've got things now where you can lock the toilet seat down, okay? Depending on what's going on in your life, that can be a very bad situation, okay? Because there's sometimes that it's beat the clock, and a lock precludes you from beating the clock. So, you know, you've got all of these things, but now with child number three, and since we've got such a large gap, I forgot what it was kind of like to have a baby. And so it's like, here it is, it's like, eh, they're fine. You know, you set him up, he's starting to roll around now, and I put him up on the couch, and Amy's like, you better not do that, he'll roll off. It's not that far to the floor. He'll, he'll be all right. He's tough, you know. You know, when we think about what mothers do and what they go through, it's amazing that any of them survive to see a child graduate. Because I know from my own life that I put my mother through a tremendous amount of torment. Uh, Sue was there for part of it. She, she experienced it. Sue, if you don't know, taught the children's church at the church that I went to. Sue has gray hair because of me. In fact, I'll tell this story, and I think I've told this before, but it was not uncommon that I would wake up in the morning and tell my mother I didn't feel good, didn't need to go to school, didn't need to go to church, whatever. And my mother was always throw up and prove it. Well, so we went to church, right? We were at church every time the doors were open. If the preacher was going to wash the windows on Thursday, we sat in our chairs and watched him do it, which I never understood why we didn't offer to help, but we watched him, so whatever. And so there was one morning I woke up, and I wasn't feeling good. And I told my mother, I'm not feeling good. Now, granted, when you hear this 100 times in the course of a year, you tend not to believe it. But I was serious this time. And so we go to church, we're sitting there in the children's church, and Sue had taken the week off. She was out of town or something. So her counterpart was in there filling in for the first and very likely the last time. And as I'm sitting there, I'm like, this room is warm. It's very warm. And we're sitting in a half circle, and she's sitting in the middle of it. And I'm sitting there like, I don't feel very good. And then no more did I think that than I projectile vomit toward said teacher. Sue dodged a bullet that day. So they take me downstairs. Yeah, she's like, praise the Lord. So they take me downstairs. I've got the trash can I'm carrying. My mother comes in, and I'm like, I told you I wasn't feeling good. And I never let her live it down. I 
guilt-tripped her to the day. In fact, I remember one other time, as again, this is the things that you do. I can tell stories about my life. You can tell stories about your life. But when I was in the fifth grade, I got a great idea one day. I said, you know, it would be fun. We had our garage and the neighbor's garage, and in between those garages were three trees. So I said, you know, it would be a lot easier to climb these trees if we nail boards all the way up. Then we can get on the garages. Seems like a great idea at the time when you're in fifth grade until you fall and you break your elbow. And I have a scar here to prove it. I ended up having to have surgery. Uh, I'm actually kind of lucky to be alive because one of the other things we did is we cut down one of those little, like those, those trees that just grow up, every volunteer trees and stuff. It's about an inch and a half round, and we cut it off. And I hit my arm on it, but I'm lucky I didn't land on it because we left about that much of it sticking up because, you know, we weren't arborists. So fifth grade, cut me some slack. So I fall off of this thing. Um, I'm, I'm like in extreme amount of pain. My mother, of course, is not sympathetic. She's mad. Why are you falling out? She wasn't even going to take me to the doctor. She's like, you're fine. Suck it up, right? I was the firstborn. You would think there was a little more sympathy. But these are the things that I did frequently. And so she takes me in there. Turns out it was broke. All the and again, I, I guilt-tripped her because she didn't want to take me to the emergency room. So that's mother. She's like, and then after that, of course, she nurtured me, took care of me. It was six months. I was in a sling and all these different things. I mean, she was there taking care of me. My father's remedy to this problem was to go pull all the boards off the tree, right? Which is a smart thing to do. The unsmart thing to do is to leave them laying in the yard with the nails sticking out of them. Because once I got healed up, I went running through there and stepped on the board that was stuck into my foot. And yeah, that's the difference between a man and a woman. So if you, when you see my mother, you just look at her and say, oh my goodness, it's a miracle. You know, if you don't believe in the power of God, there you have it. There's a lot of stuff like that. And when we look at the role of motherhood and what it is and who they are, it has changed a lot, really especially since World War II. Because during World War II, what was happening is all these young men were getting called up to duty, these young husbands and things like that. They would have young families. And so what happened is women had to step into the role because they needed all of these military things. And so there's a poster here that I want to show you. Perhaps you've seen it, Rosie the Riveter. Now, I don't know if that's an actual limit. I wasn't around during World War II. Uh, maybe some of you were. Stan, what was it like? I'm, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just, he took a week off to go play golf last week, so he's going to get it. So, so did Paul. Paul, you're coming. But he's a Nebraska fan, so he gets passed. So here we go. But, but, I mean, this was it. And so women were filling these roles and things. But after World War II, it began to change. It shifted a little bit. Because prior to that, women stayed at home. They took care of the kids. They took care of the house and all of that. And even past that to a point. But it slowly began to erode away what was naturally the role of the wife, the mother, and things like that. In fact, I found this article the other day. I think you guys are going to kick out of this. This is from Good Housekeeping in May 13, 1955. The Good Wife's Guide. All right? I want to read this to you, okay? Because I want to hear the women groan and the men applaud. Here we go. <laughs> Number one, have dinner ready. Plan ahead, even the night before, to have a delicious meal ready, on time for his return. This is a way of letting him know that you have been thinking about him and concerned about his needs. Most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospect of a good meal, especially his favorite dish, is part of a warm welcome needed. Yeah. That's a great idea. We love that. Let's look at the next one. It says, prepare yourself. Take 15 minutes to rest so you'll be refreshed when he arrives. Touch up your makeup. Put a ribbon on your hair and be fresh looking. He has just been with a lot of work-weary people. <laughs> in other words, don't show up in your sweatpants. Put some makeup on. It's not asking too much, I don't think. All right, here's another one. Now, again, remember, words change over time. Be a little gay. It's not the way you're thinking, okay? 
That means happy. Be a little happy and a little more interesting for him. His boring day may need a lift, and one of your duties is to provide it. In other words, don't bore us with your stories, right? This is good stuff. They knew something. Good housekeeping. This is, this is beautiful. I bet this article wouldn't show up today. I'm feeling like stairs. It's like burning a little bit. In fact, I think my wife is sensing this is being read right now. Okay. Here's another one. Clear away the clutter. Make one last trap, tra- trip through the main part of the house just before your husband's arrive. Up top there, here we are. Gather up school books, toys, paper, etc., and then run a dust cloth over the tables. Yes, because we care about dust. Over the cooler months of the year, you should prepare and light a fire for him to unwind. Your husband will feel he's reached a haven of rest and order, and it will give you a lift too. After all, catering for his comfort will provide you with the immense personal satisfaction. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I'm telling you guys, this is out of Proverbs, lady. You should really think about this. I may have made that last part up. Lord, I apologize. Here we go. Prepare the children. Take a few minutes to wash the children's hands and faces if they are small. Comb their hair and, if necessary, change their clothes. They are little treasures, and he would like to see them playing the part. Minimize all noise. At the time of his arrival, eliminate all noise of the washer, dryer, or vacuum. Try to encourage the children to be quiet. In other words, handle them monsters, right? Put them in a different room. You know, we had a house in Hastings, and you know how men have man caves? Right? That's kind of every guy's dream. It's usually it's in the basement or the garage. I didn't call mine the man cave. It was the fortress of solitude. Okay? It's like from Superman, if you know what I'm talking about. That lasted exactly 27 seconds. It was no fortress, nor was it solitude. All right. Be happy to see him. Greet him with a warm smile and show sincerity in your desire to please him. Listen to him. You may have a dozen important things to tell him, but the moment of his arrival is not the time. Let him talk first. Remember, his topics of conversation are more important than yours. This is... (laughs) Oh, we're getting there. We're almost done. 1955. May 13th, 1955. Here we go. Let's see. Make the evening his. Never complain if he has come home late or goes out to dinner or other places of entertainment without you. Instead, try to understand his world of strain and pressure and his very real need to be at home and relax. (laughs) And next week we'll have no women in church. Okay. Your goal. Try to make sure your home is a place of peace, order, and tranquility where your husband can renew himself in body and spirit. Don't greet him with complaints and problems. Don't complain if he's, late, if he's late home for dinner or even if he stays out all night. Count this as minor compared to what he might have gone through that day. Make him comfortable. Have him lean back in a comfortable chair or have him lie down in the bedroom. Have a cool or warm drink ready for him. Arrange his pillow and offer to take off his shoes. Speak in a low, soothing, and pleasant voice. Don't ask him questions about his actions or question his judgment or integrity. Remember, he is the master of the house, and as such will always exercise his will with fairness and truthfulness. You have no right to question him. And the last one, and you notice this is circled here, a good wife always knows her place. Now, this is an actual article. I'm sure it was written by a man. I have no doubt of that. But you look at the role of a woman... I mean, it's changed so much. As I said, during World War II, they were going, they were working. They were, for the first time, really, it's not like women didn't work at all, but for the most part, they stayed at home. It was kind of what they did. 
And there was so much of it going on back then. It's like there are things, bicycles out of the early 1900s that you just cannot find because everything was scrapped because they needed to make things for the military and whatnot. And if you find it, which is why it's worth so much money. So after this, they didn't just rush back home when the men came in. Many of them began to stay uh, back at work. And this changed the way that kids were raised. And even today, finding a true stay-at-home mom has become the exception rather than the rule. Right? Most of the time, both in, in the society that we live in today, both are required to work. And that's okay. I'm not sitting here saying they shouldn't do that or anything like that. Everybody's got to make that decision. But the truth is, is most women desire to stay home with their children more often than not. Now, some don't. Some aren't as nurturing as others. But for the most part, there is something that God has put inside of a woman that she wants to stay at home and be with her children. Some of them, your children and, and my children, you're thinking, no, I want to be around them as little as possible. I want to get them to 18. I want to get them out of the house. That's my goal. But the role of a mom is important. Now let's look at the Bible here. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20. It says, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now let's look at this for a moment. This is the passage. Remember, what did Adam do? God gave Adam the responsibility of naming every animal that was out there, right? And in Genesis chapter 3 is where you see the fall of Satan, the fall of man, all of the Eve eats the fruit, Adam eats the fruit, God's giving the judgments. Just prior to this, and then it says that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, this is important, and we'll talk about this, but her name literally means mother of all living things. We'll look at this later because he named every animal, and it has something to do with what, what they do, what they are. The name he gave her was special. And so the thing that we need to begin to think about as we look at this, because this is not often where we would start on a Mother's Day deal. But remember one thing about God is He is omniscient, which means that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. Omniscience is really what it means. He's all-knowledge. He knows everything. He knows the beginning from the end. Put it this way. God has never had an idea. Now, that's hard for us to understand, but, but it's not like He was just like... Ah. Why didn't I think of that? That's not God. God knows everything. He knows all about it. He knows what's going to happen and everything. He's never had an idea. And listen to how he describes himself in Isaiah chapter 46, starting in verse 9. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. His counsel will stand. One of the things that we call the Bible is the counsel of God, the Word of God. His Word is true. And so God has ordained a way of doing things that we, have, we really should try to follow. And so when we look at this, His counsel shall stand. That Even in a world of turmoil, even when culture around us has changed the way that they do things, if we go about things God's way, then we will be proven successful in the long run. And so when we look at the life of the Israelites, God gave them all these laws, right? 613 laws. There's all sorts of obscure ones. There are things that God told them specifically to do. But one of the things we're going to do is we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 23. Now, this is not a verse that I typically go to, especially during a Mother's Day sermon. I especially wouldn't say that this is a verse that we would read because, you know, it's like, oh, it's inspirational. It just means so much to me. Let's read this. Deuteronomy 23, verse 12. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out. And you shall have an implement among your equipment, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. Refuse could be excrement. Okay? In other words, go out of the camp, dig a hole, do your duty, bury it. Right? 
Deuteronomy, you're sitting to think Mother's Day. This is where we're starting, right? Well, moms deal with a lot of crap, so that's, <laughs> that's part of it. That's part of it. But here's the thing. Why did God tell the Israelites specifically to do this? Most of you guys didn't even know that was in the Bible. You're like, there's a verse about pooping? That's awesome. <laughs> like all the guys are like, that's fantastic. I'm going to bring that up at youth here in a couple of weeks. Okay. But, but the bottom line here is, is, why did God tell them to do that? Why did he go to all this trouble? I mean, this is specific. And we see, well, here's what happened. is thousands of years later, the Europeans decided that they were smarter than God. Because all of this time, every camp had a way to deal with their sewage. They'd always run it out, and they would bury it, their trash, all of this kind of thing. But the Europeans said, no, we're smarter. So what would happen is that during this... the you know, 1000 BC or AD, excuse me, things like that, and a little bit past that, what we call the Middle Ages, is that they would just go outside of their home and just leave it there. And they would throw out their trash and all of that. And that wasn't a big deal, except that it drove in rats. And the rats are disgusting animals. We're not, like, they're meant to clean up messes and things like that. But the rats themselves weren't the problem. It was the fleas that were on the rats that were the problem. And those fleas contained a virus that we call the bubonic plague. Sorry about this microphone. We're going to figure this out. I'm trying to make it work. And during this bubonic plague, one out of three people died in Europe. I mean, it was bad. But what happened is they took God's wisdom away from the situation and said, we've got this. We can do it on our own. Now, they may not have known about Deuteronomy 23 in Europe. I would guess they did. But they didn't care. They went from doing things God's way to doing things man's way is the point, is that for thousands of years, this is the way things had been done, and all of a sudden, we're smarter than that. We can do this on our own. We don't need this. So because God's wisdom is always sure, when we look at that, we look at the counsel of God, and God's wisdom is always a, a true foundation, is often referred to as a rock, okay? In Psalm 18, chapter, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is talking about, I mean, Isaiah is sitting here just sitting there like, God, you are everything. You are so solid. You are the foundation. You are the rock, my rock and my fortress. You can say my foundation. My, my everything I have that is built upon is built upon you. And this is where we should build our beliefs. And it says, my shield and the horn of my salvation. The first time that that is used, the horn of salvation, in the Old Testament is when Hannah is praying for a son. That son's name would be Samuel. Samuel is an important prophet. He was, and God, Hannah had promised God that if you'll give me a son, then I will turn him over to be a servant of you. And this horn was for this headdress thing that she wore. And so it was all of this ornate things and things like that. But, I mean, a horn also represents authority through Scripture. When it talks about the horns on the altar and things like that, they would grab a hold of the horns because that was the authority. In other words, God is the foundation and also the authority, the one who can grant this salvation that we're referring to. But here's what God's telling us, that there are times in history where the counsel of God are outside of the norms of society. And when this happened, the majority of the people are not going in this direction. And when this takes place, they have a tendency to mock those who are going in the direction of God's counsel. They'll come up with names from them. They'll call them things like bigots and xenophobes and all of these other names. Because people that are going towards God are now mocked and ridiculed because we're smarter than that. We know how to do all of these things. We don't know what's going on. 
us Christians, we don't, we don't have a clue. We're just, we're in the dark ages. You know, that religious system was good for a time, but we don't need it because we're enlightened. We're smarter than that now. And the reality is, is we never become smarter or more, more uh, smarter than God, more, more aligned with the world that, that we can get away from the truth of His Word. And ultimately, that every time people have fallen the Word of God, even when it was against the, the current of society, if you will, that they're ultimately proven correct, it just sometimes takes some time to get there. And that's the society that we live in today. Why is this? Is that God will let people mock Him, and He won't do anything about it. He doesn't strike them with lightning. He doesn't do anything like that. Jesus stood there and let people spit in His face and hit Him and mock Him. The entire time He's standing at the cross, He said nothing. Why? He didn't need to. God allows us to mock Him. God will not be mocked. Well, yeah, ultimately... He won't. You know what? And people that call themselves Christian, they are mocking God. When we talk about don't take the Lord's name in vain, it is the idea that we are taking on His name, not just don't use His name as a cuss word. I mean, that's definitely a good thing not to do. But the reality is, is that it's just don't take on His name. Claim to be a follower of Him and then live your life any way you want. That's not what He's trying to talk about here. God has always proven right. His counsel will always stand. And when we look at this as we're comparing this to, to motherhood, is that the highest place and calling that a woman can hold is that of being a mother. There's not a mother alive who does not cherish their children. And, and even when their children don't deserve cherishing, and they're being horrible, bratty kids, that they cherish them, they love them. They say, these are the reason that I breathe, even though you want to punch them in the face at times. <laughs> but you know what's funny? Is that that child also has that same draw to their mother. When a kid gets hurt, who does he run to? It's not dad. What does dad say? Get up, you'll be all right. Rub some dirt on it. You know, they're flailing their arm, you know, around like that. What do you, what's the dad say? Suck it up, buttercup. Where's mom? Oh, baby, oh. You know, I mean, come here, schmuckums. I mean, all of this stuff. They run to their, why? Because it's into their arms. They're going to hug them, you know. Kissing boo-boos is not a dad thing. Moms invented that. Dads don't use the word boo-boo and owie, right? It's broke or it ain't. There's blood or there's not. If there's no blood, don't be crying. If your arm is not bending in a way that God designed it to bend, shut up. We're done. Thanks for playing. I mean, that's just how guys are. But children are drawn to mothers. I have a friend of mine that has been doing foster care for years. And there was one, he, he brought in, I think there was a family of, there were three kids that he brought in. Mother was a, was a crack whore, basically. Was in and out of prison. They lived in a one-bedroom apartment. They slept on the floor most of the time. Um, if it wasn't for food stamps, they wouldn't have any food. And oftentimes she sold those. She had a major problem. And so they got brought into this home where they had a nice house to live in. They got to do things they never got to do before. They actually got cell phones and clean clothes and all of those things. And if you had asked any one of those kids that if they had the option to go back to their mother, would they? The answer was always yes. And it doesn't make any sense, but there is something about a bond between a child and a mother that is almost unbreakable. I say almost. Sometimes the kids are breakable. And what we're talking about here is about a mother just being a mother and taking pride in being a mom. It goes against our Western culture, this flow where culture is going. And when we look at the name Eve, where it says the mother of all living, it comes from the Hebrew word Shavah, C-H-A-V-V-A-H. And it means life spring. It's the giver of life. A mother brings an eternal human being into existence. 
And that eternal human being is one that can know God. Because without moms, there is nobody else. You, we're not here without a mom, right? You know, one of the things I do when I'm talking about uh, apologetics is I, I joke with this, but I'm, I'm talking to people who said, you know, they always say, well, give science enough time and they'll prove that God doesn't exist. I'm like, well, that's like saying, give me enough time and I'll prove that I gave birth to my mother, right? It's like, yeah, I'll just keep going. You know, why not? I mean, there's all of these things, but when a mother, there's this bond, they give life. Yeah, man has a part to play with it, but it's pretty minor. Because for nine months, they're carrying that thing around, that, that thing. And their body is never the same. And they're miserable. And they're cranky. And they have weird cravings, right? I mean, the ideas of pickle and ice cream didn't come from nothing. Somebody put those two items together and said, ooh, let's dip it. You know? I mean, it's weird. They're vomiting every day for the first three months. And then they look at you and say, you did this to me. It's your fault. And then you go into the room. And only a mother can love a newborn baby. Only a mother. Because I have one rule, and that rule is always proven right. All newborns are ugly. All of them. They come out, they're slimy, they're purple, they look horrible, they look like tiny, like Chinese aliens. And, and only a mother can be like, oh, I love you. And the father's like either passed out or vomiting in the corner. <laughs> only a mother can do that. There's a difference between man and woman, and it was ordained that way. I mean, I'll give you an example, okay? I did not grow up with babies. We adopted my little sister when I was 16 years old. I had never been around babies, ever, okay? Didn't, didn't change diapers, didn't do any of that kind of stuff. So I'd never seen that done. My brother, who was two years younger than me, I didn't have a clue what was going on. So they handed me my sister one time, I think I'm probably 17 at this point, asked me to feed her a bottle. Okay, Can't, doesn't seem too complicated. Holding child here, sitting down, feeding bottle. Nobody said this, you should stop once in a while and burp the child. So I'm, I'm, I don't know what I was doing, but I wasn't paying attention. Next thing I know, I'm like, oh, the bottle's empty. Well, that's nice. Uh, I wonder, what do I do now? I went from this position to this position and wore all of that bottle. All of it. That's a smell that I will never forget. It still burns my nostrils. I'll give you another story. You guys like stories? I like stories. I have lots of them because I'm not a smart man in many things. When Ariana was first born, she was born in July, and my wife's brother and I were going to go up to Omaha, we're going to do a little Christmas shopping, and so I think at that point my wife was still working, and I said, I'll take her with me. Famous last words. It was not good for me or the child. And so I had a pep talk with her, and I'm sure all the men in here have done this. I said, listen, we're going to have a fun day. You know, she's five months old, six months old at this point. I said, but I need one thing from you. Just one promise. That's all I need. Don't poop. All I ask. You do anything else you want. Please don't. We make our first stop. I'm pulling her out of the car seat. And as I lift her up, it's like the gates of hell have been opened. <laughs> and I put her in the stroller and we walk into Sears. That's where we were starting. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. And my brother-in-law, who was in the same boat I was, says, well, you think you need to change her? And I'm like, well, I probably do. I don't want to. Uncle, do you want to? He says, oh, no. <laughs> so I walked into the Sears Automotive bathroom. Never changed a diaper before. And there's no changing table. Have you ever been in a Sears Automotive bathroom? They are not pleasant. So I'm down on my hands and knees. We have this little mat thing there, and she's beginning to roll at this point. I lay her down on this mat, and I crack open that diaper, and then the, hell's, the gates of hell really opened. And I lose it. I begin to vomit in the toilet. 
luckily I hit the toilet, and I'm vomiting here, and I look over, and she's beginning to roll around with cracked open diaper, which means it's going to be everywhere. So I'm reaching back here trying to hold her head. It took me 27 minutes to get out of that. I come out, I've got tears in my eyes, like I'm beat red. My brother-in-law's like, I thought you died. And all I can say is I really wish I would have. I've changed three diapers between three children. My wife is a rock star. Before you leave today, get her autograph. <laughs> she is awesome. But here's the deal. I'm wired different, right? Women are wired different. Let's look at how, how this is used in Jesus in John chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, it says, There was a man named, man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with, with him. Remember, the Pharisees are the teachers. These are the higher up. This would be like, like the, the bishops in the Catholic Church. Like, you should be teaching people the word. So he should know what's going on. And he says, we know that you're a teacher from God because of the signs. The thing, what was he doing? The miracles, the, the healings, the raising of the dead, all of this. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think that's a fair question. And I know every woman's like, nope, not happening, right? Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you the earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now what is he saying here? Nicodemus is confused. You said born again. Wait a minute. I was born once. You said if the man has to be born of water, which is referring to natural birth, and of this spirit, this born again experience, how do I do that? Do I have to enter back into my mother's womb? And he's getting on to him, Jesus, because he says, listen, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Why is he saying that? Because it's all through the Old Testament of this, what we call born-again experience that's coming. That in, in Ezekiel and all these other places where it says, I will put a new spirit within my spirit. Verse 18, he who believes in him is all, not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, and that they have been done in God. You see, mothers provide this sacred space of which a child is developed and born, and this closeness with a mother is unlike that of the Father. It's, it's not even possible. It is one with them. It was out of their body that they come. And this connection that's being made here, 
that Jesus is saying it's just like that. You're born here. You have to be reborn, spiritually speaking. But again, this idea is going against the flow of culture because in the culture of the Israelite, to be right with God, you had to be born an Israelite and you had to keep the commandments. That's all it was. Jesus is saying, no, wait a minute. While that's true, that is not all that has to be done, this born-again thing. But what he says in verse 18 on is that men love darkness. They love the things. They hate the light. They don't want to go to the light. He who believes in Him, not just believing that He existed, believes in Jesus means they put their faith and their hope in Him, can have this eternal life. They're not condemned. But Him who doesn't, they're already condemned because they didn't believe in Him. And so they love the darkness, and they practice evil, and they hate the light. Who is the light of the world? Jesus. This flow of culture that's getting away. There is something special about motherhood. And because culture has been shifting away, you're looked upon, if you're a stay-at-home mom, as if you've settled. As if there's a greater call in your life that that you can have. Because you didn't chase the career. Or that you made decisions that, you know what, maybe my family's not going to drive newer cars all the time because we're going to stay at home. I mean, my wife and I, when, when we decided she was going to stay at home, it was shortly after Ariana was born. Because the first time I was left alone with this child, she started screaming. Now, mothers have this sixth sense. They know what that scream means most of the time, right? Fathers don't. You're making noise, so you go through your checklist. Diaper, clean. Bed, yep. Tired, maybe? I don't know. I mean, you run out of checklist quick. You don't know what to do. So I called my wife. The, idea, the plan was already set that she was going to give her notice and she was going to quit her job. This child, after screaming for 30 minutes, and that was about all I can handle, I called her up. I said, quit your job now. Come home right now. Quit your, just walk out. Don't ever go back. Don't look back. You'll turn into a pillar of salt. Just turn around, get in your car, drive to this house, and fix this baby because it's broken. Because I could not handle it. Could not handle it. There was this bond, there was about this, and so we made the decision that she was going to stay home. It was for a couple of reasons. One, she wanted to. Two, I desperately wanted her to. Three, the child would not have lived long left in my care. It was just not going to happen. And so, when those, but, but because of that, we had to make the decision that our lifestyle is going to have to be different than if we were both working. She has her college degree, she's a licensed teacher and all of that, and we decided in spite of that that she's going to stay home, which means we had to lessen our lifestyle. And you know what? We get looked upon as if, like, you're kidding me. Why would you do that? I mean, you all have seen that red van I drive around, right? It's called Rusty for a reason because I got it for cheap, and it drives good, and I don't care what it looks like. It ain't got a payment on it, and I like that a lot. But you know what? My, I mean, we got family members who just think we're nuts, what are you doing? Why do, if she'd go work, then you could afford more stuff. I don't want to afford more stuff. I want my kids to graduate high school, and that's not going to happen left in my care. It's not. They will not. If they, it was up to me, they'd, probably, they'd run around in Velcro shoes the rest of their life because they'd never learn to tie them. Proverbs 31. We're going to end with this, guys, because I'm done telling stories for the day, I think. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 10. Many of you guys are familiar with this. Some of you maybe never, maybe never heard this. This is not the passage that I was reading earlier on that list that was written in that magazine, just so you know. Who can bind a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safety trust her, safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. Wool and flax, you know what that is? Clothes. She seeks them. She's at the mall. 
She is like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard, showing that she's good with money. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out with her hands to the needy. She is not afraid to, of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. Again, clothing, not a coincidence. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen with purple. There's a third mention of clothing, y'all. Are you guys picking up on this? Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. Here we are again. Strength and honor her clothing, she shall rejoice in the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. This is talking about what we call the virtuous woman. You know, everybody says, find your Proverbs 31 woman. And the truth is, those are hard to find anymore because we've been taught something different as if that you wanting to be at home and be with a mother and, and all of these other things is a negative. And you know, there's something special about this bond with a mother and a child, as we've said time and time again. I think we've all seen that. And that even when they grow old and they become an adult and they're out on their own, there's still that bond with their mother that's something special. Now, sometimes that child, it says that when she fears the Lord, it's something to be celebrated, one who fears the Lord. And many of you have maybe brought your kids up in, in a fear of the Lord in the household, but they've gone away when they, they've, they've gotten older. They've, they've strayed from the path, if you will. And I get asked all the time. In fact, it was just a couple months ago, I got a call from a gal that was at the church I was at last time because she was distraught. She didn't know what to do with her son. Um, because she's like, he just wants nothing to do with God, and I don't know what to do about it. And so one of the things I said, well, one, you need to show him what somebody who fears God. I, I, what would you do if it was somebody else? And they said, well, I would let my light shine before them. I said, okay, well, that's a good place to start. So what does that mean? Well, I, I talk about God. They know the things I do. But I, the reason that I do them is not just because I'm godly. It's, it's that it's the change that's within me. I said, that's great. Allow your kids to see that. And what would happen is that every time their kids would come to visit, they would skip church. They'd go boating. They'd go play golf. They'd go ride motorcycles and all that. I'm like, what are you showing them? That this is a priority of the things of God. Not that you've got to be at church every time the doors are open, for heaven's sake. But, but, I mean, the principle here is that we're not continuing to show them that there is something more important than this. And so she, she began to cry and realize, oh, my goodness. And so she began to do that and slowly started seeing a change in her kids. You know, and it's still a long, I mean, it's only been a couple of months. But she said they finally started asking questions about God and the Bible and things that they haven't asked in years. And all because is that Junior finally recognized that you are not the center of mom's world. God is. And that while I love you and I'm going to be there for you, I'm not going to skip church just because you want to come around and visit. Come to church with me. Actually, I'm going to go twice now, you know, which is a big step. But, I mean, these are the things. You think about it. But there's something innate about a, a, a woman, about a mother, that is so special and so God-ordained that why would we allow culture to tell us and look down upon it as if this is a negative? You've got society that tells you that that baby in the womb is a parasite, and it's just leeching from you. It is, that baby in the womb is handcrafted by God put together by him, that has eternal consequences, that when he comes out, it's going to have a bond with the mother and with the father. But that bond with the mother that is so special, that is her job as she fears the Lord to put that into them. 
and that no matter where they are in life, that they see that you put God first. And if they see that, then they will follow suit. And that, that there's just something special about that that never, ever goes away. And so given that it's Mother's Day and, and we need to get out of here so you guys can go spend time with them, if you're not with your mother, call your mother. My mother currently is sitting on a beach in Florida. The best gift I can give to her, I'm not going to bug her today. She'll be thankful. And if she finds out I told all these stories about her, she won't be thankful. 